Mind control with lasers. That's right. We're bringing science fiction into the laboratory. A new study came out this week using an extremely innovative technique uh, by Carl DeSeroth's group out in Stanford. First author is Brian Hsu, H-S-U-E-H. I don't know how to pronounce that, so apologies if I butchered it. But anyways, title of the paper was Cardiogenic Control of Effective Behavioral State. So this was a very innovative paper that was using lasers to optically pace the heart. So changing the rate of the heart, how fast it's beating using lasers and checking whether or not it changes the anxiety-like behavior. Uh, And they tested this in mice. And so what was very cool about this paper is that it was bringing a technique called optogenetics into the peripheral parts of the body and changing physiological behavior of the heart and seeing how it affected emotional state, anxiety. So first of all, what is optogenetics? Optogenetics, more or less, like I said, is using lasers for mind control, more or less. It's basically using lasers, using different sources of light in order to change the activity of cells. Now, this technique has been used widely uh, as of recently uh, in order to understand how different parts of the nervous system function. So in order to uh, actively control single neurons or single groups of neurons in order to stimulate them or inhibit them to figure out how neural circuits work. So it's worth to take a quick little dive, I guess, into how optogenetics actually works. So it's not just sticking lasers in and and zapping things and hoping for the best. There's actually a very specific components to this technique that that bring to light many of the advantages that it has, mainly being the, the spatial and temporal specificity that it gives us in neuroscience and now in physiology in order to actually precisely control certain areas of the brain and not only certain areas, but precisely control specific subtypes of cells within certain areas of the brain and then the body. So we can figure out how they work, where they connect, things like that. So some of the basic principles of optogenetics. So optogenetics, first and foremost, it's it's a technique that uses light to control the activity of, of neurons or, or other cells that have been genetically modified uh, to express these different light-sensitive proteins, and we call these opsins. So opsins are proteins that when they come into contact with light, they have a response, pure and simple. So the most commonly used opsins for optogenetics in order to actually manipulate the activity of brain cells or, or different physiological cells is an opsin called channel rhodopsin. And so it's activated by blue light, and you can also use one called halo rhodopsin, which is an inhibitory one uh, that's activated by yellow light. So basically when a blue light hits a channel rhodopsin protein, it changes the conformational shape of this protein and it allows cations or positively charged ions to flow into a cell, which then excite it. And on the flip side, halo rhodopsin is the opposite. When a yellow light hits it, it allows negatively charged ions to flow into the cell, which then hyperpolarizes it or it shuts it off. Now, these opsins have been around for a long time, and they're around in many different types of species. So uh, the ones that are primarily used for uh, neuroscience are derived from microbial organisms, but all different types of organisms express uh, opsins. So they're, they're seen in things like algae that actually when light hits them, it can stimulate flagella to, to make them move. Uh, It's also seen in things like jellyfish, and it gives them some of these very uh, cool-looking colors that you see within the jellyfish. So 
when you want to actually take optogenetics or you want to take these uh, opsins and you want to insert them actually into mammalian, mammalian systems in order to change how these cells actually work, that's where it becomes a bit more of a hurdle. And and thankfully, thanks to uh, many different groups, uh, mainly in the early 2000s, but largely pioneered uh, through Carl DeSaroth uh, over in Stanford, uh, found out a way in order to insert these proteins or these opsins into mammalian cells into the nervous system. And once they did that, they were able to take uh, I say lasers, but basically it's just like a blue light. It's just like a concentrated blue light for these channel rhodopsins or a concentrated yellow light for these halo rhodopsins. And you can implant it over certain areas of the brain and you can either stimulate or inhibit certain cells with very high precision in order to modulate different areas of the brain. And so in order to do this, you, you also need to incorporate a bit of, let's say, gene therapy. So regardless... Here's the basic steps of optogenetics. First of all, there's gene delivery. So the first step is you have to be able to deliver a gene that encodes for the protein. So basically our genes that are, that are har harbored in our DNA, they give the blueprints in order to say which proteins need to be made and which ones don't need to be made. And so first of all, you have to deliver a gene into the target cells that you want to say, hey, make this opt-in and insert it into the membrane of the cell so that we can actually do this. And so one of the ways that it can be done is through a viral vector uh, called an adeno adeno-associated virus, an AAV. Uh, and so this AAVs allows us to modify these viruses in order to insert specific genes to say, hey, look, make this opsin in the cell and put it there. And so you can inject a AAV or a virus into the animal and then it can follow and find its target. And so you can modify this AAV in order to target specific cells within the brain. And so let's say, you know, we want to study how dopamine affects behavior because everybody loves dopamine. You can target this AAV to say, hey, look, go find any cell that is producing dopamine and insert yourself into that cell. So you can transfect just the cells that express dopamine. And on that AAV, you have a little backpack that contains the blueprints in order to express these light sensitive options. And so when that virus goes in, it targets those, you know, dopaminergic cells in this case. And then once it's in there, it unloads its backpack, makes these options, these light sensitive proteins, and it inserts themselves onto the membrane. And so once that's happened, now only the dopaminergic cells within the brain express this specific protein that's excited by light, which is really cool because when you stick in a laser subsequently or a light, then when you turn it on, the only cells that are going to be stimulated are those that are expressing dopamine. And of course, you can do it for a number of different neuromodulators. You can do it for dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, glutamate, GABA, acetylcholine, you know, pick whichever one you want. And that's how you can be very specific into studying specific subtypes of cells within a neural circuit. And this has huge advantages over some of the uh, other techniques that have been used. So basically, you know, the neurons within a brain are very much um, just little electrical conductors. And so uh, the way that they produce messages, uh, the way that they create their messages, the way that they change their activities largely through changes in electricity. 
And so you have an exchange of ions going in and out of the cell at any given time. And so anytime that you have a channel open and you have positively charged ions go into the cell, that's what depolarizes the cell or makes it more excited and then allows the neurons to actually start to turn on and pass their message down to the next neuron within the chain. And so that's how you get communication different, uh, between different brain regions. And under normal conditions, uh, you know, you'll have neurons that are turning other neurons on. And so you have cell to cell communication, but when we want to actually go in and we want to exploit these neural circuits, we have to find some way to turn these cells on in order to force them to communicate along their given path in order to elicit a behavior. So if we think, you know, a certain region of the brain is involved in anxiety, for example, uh, we can go in and we can target that part of the brain and we can stick an electrical uh, probe down there and we can just deliver electricity, which just forces the cells to become more positively charged and to turn on. The nice thing about this is that you can see how large scale regions of the brain actually work. The, the problem with it though is that you're just stimulating everything. I mean, there's no discrimination. You're just sticking a electrical probe down there and you're zapping it. You're basically putting a, a, a small taser into a certain region of the brain, zapping it and seeing what happens. And so, yeah, like let's say that you elicit an anxiety-like behavior. That's great. You know, you can say that something in this general vicinity of the brain is involved in producing anxiety. The problem is that this is not at all physiological for the most part, right? Because uh, usually it, when the brain itself is going to you know, recruit a certain part of the brain in order to give rise to that feeling of anxiety, it's not gonna just stimulate every single cell within the area. It has very specific pathways of subsets of neurons that are activated and so the, the, the flaw with just broadly activating all the cells is that you don't necessarily learn the specific neuronal subtypes or the, the specific types of cells that are used for a given behavior. And so when you then insert optogenetics as an alternative, you can start to have extremely preci precise control of certain cells within a region. So if you take this, this basic neural network and let's say it has dopaminergic cells and it has cells that express glutamate and cells that express GABA and you, you, if you just stick an electrical probe, you stick that little brain taser down in there and you just stimulate it, you're going to stimulate the dopamine cells, you're going to stimulate the uh, glutamatergic cells, you're going to stimulate the GABAergic cells and you don't know which ones are the ones that are actually giving rise to the behavior that gives you, you know, your anxiety, for example. And so this creates a problem, you know, twofold in that when we're trying to create different therapeutic targets or we're trying to create different modalities of acting on specific parts of the brain or creating drugs that are going to target, or I should say therapeutics, maybe not just drugs, but create specific therapeutics that are going to, you know, be an anti-anxiety type of drug, you have to know which neurons are the ones that are actually giving rise to the anxiety. You can't just go in and just block all, you know, dopaminergic cells, all glutamatergic cells, all GABAergic cells, etc. You have to know which ones they specifically are. And so when you can use studies like optogenetics to come in and you can stimulate just the dopaminergic cells in this one specific region of the brain and that gives rise to your anxiety, you can say, "Aha. These are the cells that I want to target." for a subsequent therapeutic approach 
in order to modulate their activity to increase or relieve anxiety. And so that's where some of the translatability of optogenetics becomes very cool. Great. So so going back to actually making it work in the lab, now you, you've injected the virus into the subject, um, and the virus has gone and it's found its specific subset of cells that it wants to infect. It's, unlo- it's unloaded its backpack. So now these light-sensitive proteins are created. They're inserted onto the cell. And when light comes in, then they can turn the cells on or off. This process takes can take several weeks. Uh, it just depends on whatever type of, of light protein that you're using and which type of vector that you're you're using as well. Um, you can also have now you know nowadays there's there's very cool uh, things that make it very easy for us. You don't have to actually inject every single subject anymore. Uh, you can actually use mice that constitutively express the components of the optogenetic system. And so that way, when the mice are born, they already express the light-sensitive proteins in the brain regions that uh, you want them to be expressed in. And so so there's a, a, a system, a genetic modification system, uh, using something called Crelox. And so basically what you can do is you can take this Cree, or Cree recombinase, as it's called. It's just an enzyme, okay? Um, basically, there's animals that are available now. Um, I won't go necessarily into the process of how you actually insert the Cree into the genetic lineage, but basically you can you can order mice that express this Cree enzyme in certain cells um, of a specific lineage. And so you can say, you know, I want to target all of the, the glutamatergic or excitatory cells within the brain. And so I can order uh, mice or you can order um, different animals that express this enzyme specifically in those cells. And so you can get something like a, a V-glute 2 Cree mice is what it's called. So basically any cell that expresses a glutamate transporter, so it's a glutamatergic cell, it's an excitatory cell within your brain, those cells also express Cree. And under normal conditions, this Cree recombinase doesn't do anything. It's just a benign enzyme that's just floating around, which is uh, convenient. But what you can do then is that you can take these mice and you can breed them with another form of mice that constitutively express the proteins, or they constitutively express the blueprints for those light-sensitive proteins, those opsins. And what happens is that the way that these mice are set up is that it's a Cree-dependent reaction. So, and so basically, any time that a cell expresses Cree, when it's mixed with an animal that has the blueprints for expressing the opsin, only the cells that express that, that Cree enzyme are the ones that will end up expressing it because you need both parts of the system together in order to get expression of the protein. And so basically you can take these mice that constitutively express the blueprints for these channel redoptions or these excitatory light sensitive proteins. But normally, you know, there's no Cree in these mice. There's no enzyme that says, you know, start the reaction to actually produce these proteins. So these mice by themselves don't express these light sensitive proteins. Similarly, the mice that only express that enzyme, Cree, you know, the, the gas, if you will, to actually produce the, uh, the light-sensitive proteins, they don't express them as well. But when you mate the two mice together, when you mix the Cree with those constitutively expressing mice that have the blueprints for the light-sensitive proteins, then you get expression. And so it can save a lot of time 
because you don't need to be injecting mice with virus waiting for uh, the expression of those light-sensitive proteins. And, of course, there's a lot of variability that comes with the expression levels by doing it that way as well. Great. So now we got you know different ways that we can insert these light-sensitive proteins into specific cells within the brain to you know affect specific behaviors. Now comes you know the next part where you actually have to insert a laser or you have to insert a fiber optic um, light source in order to produce a light at a specific wavelength, whether it be blue or, or red or green or purple or whatever light you know red. Uh, or I already said red, whatever, um, in order to actually get those cells to be responsive in order to elicit an effect. And so typically this involves a, a surgery uh, where you'll actually implant a, a laser or implant the fiber optic down into the area of the brain uh, that you're targeting. Um, and so it's a pretty relatively simple procedure. Um, you just, you implant the the laser, um, you externalize the little source of the light. So you have this little cable coming out from uh, the head, wherever you implanted the laser, seal it all up. And then the mice live totally fine. And then when you want to go and stimulate the, uh, different regions of the brain, you can hook up the, the, the little trail of the laser to the light source. And then, you know, just by a click of a button, you can turn certain brain regions on or off. And this is where you get mind control with lasers. And obviously, you know, just from this description, you can you can start to realize that depending on where you stick the laser and depending on which cell groups are expressing this light-sensitive protein, you can get some wild behaviors, uh, you know, from just turning on a light. And so actually, you know, one of the first studies that was showing the efficacy of this technique in the lab was looking at locomotion. And so they implanted a, a laser into the right side of the brain. Um, I believe this is Carl DeSaroth's group as well. They implanted a laser into the right side of the brain. And so typically, you know, the things that happen on the right side of the brain control uh, the left side of the body for the most part, because most of those nerve tracks, you know, cross over. And so there's this wild video where there's this mouse that's just, uh, you know, just standing there or it's standing near the right side of it's in like a, a white bucket looking thing. And then they turned on the laser to shine, you know, that to, to stimulate the, the right side of the brain near the locomotor centers. And the mouse just starts circling, just starts walking to the left. And so it's just doing little circles leftward, just these counterclockwise circles. And so, you know, I imagine it must be some really weird feeling. And it is one of the things that I often, you know, wonder about with optogenetics is, you know, if you're, if you're this mouse and all of a sudden you're just walking left and you don't know why you're walking left, but you can't stop walking left, you know, all of a sudden it, it's probably a really weird feeling. Similarly, you know, like we use it in a lot of our studies to control breathing. And so you can, you can shine a light in certain areas of the brainstem and you can turn breaths on, or you can inhibit a breath or you can make them breathe faster, you know? And so you can have an animal in a recording chamber, you can turn the light on and suddenly their respiration rate doubles or triples or quadruples. And suddenly that animal is breathing extremely fast and it has, you know, not under its control anymore. So imagine yourself just sitting there and suddenly your respiratory rate starts tripling and you can't stop breathing just because there's, you know, a laser being shown. So it's some, it's some wild stuff, you know, and, and some of the studies have been using it for memory. So you can actually like disrupt memory formation, or you can create false memories by stimulating different areas of the brain at certain times. It's crazy. 
And, you know, another one of the the main advantages of the optogenetics, besides, you know, just stimulating things and seeing how animals behave, which is very cool, you know, because it, it shows which brain regions are important for creating certain behaviors. Uh, but you can also start to map different areas of the brain. And so you can start to create a connectome, I guess, if you will. Um, which is basically just like a map of all of the different interconnections within the brain. And so, you know, for a long time, one of the challenges in neuroscience when you're trying to understand which areas of the brain connect to the other is that you have to be able to figure out, one, how to see them. Because when you open up a brain, it just looks like this gray gelatinous goop, right? You can't see the cells. So you have to be able to figure out a way in order to see the cells and you have to be able to figure out a way in order to, you know, if you want to see if one region of the brain in the cortex and the prefrontal cortex, for example, if it, you know, if it is sending projections to, I don't know, the hippocampus, for example, well, you can see this gray gloop in the area that's typically associated with the prefrontal cortex. And you can see this gray gloop that's typically associated with the hippocampus. But it's not like there's these little ropes that you can just use your fingers and you can just, you know, run a line and figure out whether or not there's interconnections. There has to be some way in order to see them or there has to be some way in order to stimulate one region of the brain and see if you get a response from another. And so, you know, optogenetics has, has very much pushed the innovation in this space by being able to specifically control the, the neurons in one region, and then you can stick a recording probe in the other region to see if there's a functional connectivity. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, obviously there's there's anatomical connectivity, there's direct anatomical projections, um, but there's also, there's also polysynaptic connections in the brain. So basically, like, let's say that the prefrontal cortex, uh, and I'm just using this as an example, I don't know if these are, you know, connected off the top of my head, but let's just say that there's a connection between the prefrontal, the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, but it takes a little detour through, I don't know, the thalamus, let's just say. I don't know if this is really a realistic pathway. I probably should have used a better one, but whatever, you get the idea. Um, and if it goes from the prefrontal cortex to the thalamus, and then a cell in the thalamus then talks to the hippocampus, you can still end up you know, stimulating the prefrontal cortex which then subsequently stimulates the thalamus, which then subsequently stimulates the hippocampus. And you can get this uh, sense, you know, that there's this functional connectivity from the prefrontal cortex to the thalamus or to the, to the hippocampus, excuse me. And so basically, you know, if you stick a laser in the prefrontal cortex, you stimulate, you have a recording probe in the hippocampus, these cells start to go pop, 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 pop. Then you can say, cool, there's some functional connectivity between the PFC or prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. And of course, with optogenetics, you can do it very um, specifically. And so you can say, you know, if I stimulate the glutamatergic cells in the PFC, then you get a response in the hippocampus. But if I stimulate the norepinephrine-producing cells in the PFC, you don't. And so you can say, you know, there's a certain subgroup of, of cells within the PFC that are specifically projecting to the hippocampus and other ones that aren't. And so this is really cool because, you know, in an earlier episode, I was talking about the fact that within a certain brain region, typically we give them names of, you know, there's a certain nucleus, there's the amygdala, there's the prefrontal cortex, there's the hippocampus, there's the thalamus, there's whatever, uh, you know, but within this defined region, there's a ton of different cell groups, 
And there's a, you know, there's, there's can be a hundred different types of cells within a given region, but they're all amygdala cells, you know, for example. Um, and so now that it's, you know, a lot of these studies are becoming very independent single cell, or I guess I should say, uh, single cell dependency or their single cell resolution of microcircuits within the brain. Uh, you need very specific tools in order to do that. And so optogenetics provides a way for you to do that. The other you know, advantage besides the specificity of that is, is being able to control the cells with the light gives us very high resolution for temporal um, changes in cell activity. And so, you know, when you're trying to understand how a certain cell is functioning, when you just go in with the taser, brain taser, and you just stimulate everything and you just stimulate with a constant rate, it doesn't act the way that cells normally act. And so the latency period for these channel or these, excuse me, these, these ops and proteins is extremely fast. So the second that the light turns on, the second that the light turns off, those cells are on off, on off. Um, and so you can change the different the rate at which you're firing these cells. So you can use different firing rates of, you know, X, X Hertz. And so you can say, you know, at 10 Hertz, if I, if I fire these cells at 10 Hertz, you get one specific behavior. So if I take this region in the cortex and I fire these specific cells at 10 Hertz, I produce anxiety. Whereas if, whereas if I take the same cells and I fire them at 20 Hertz or I fire them at 30 Hertz, Suddenly, instead of anxiety, I get arousal. And it's like, so you can start to see that the the different combinations of cells, the different combinations of firing rates, the timing of the firing rates, the, you know, the, the time in between the firings, it can get very messy. But what it has done is it, it's unlocked, you know, the complexity that is many of these circuits within the brain. And it's not as simple as just... You know, saying this region turns on and it gives us this behavior and this, you know, this region turns on and it gives us anxiety. This region turns on and it gives us fear. This region turns on and it gives us sexual arousal. It's much more complicated than that. And so with these different tools, we're able to start to unlock some of these things. So what are the disadvantages of optogenetics? With every technique that has advantages, there are always disadvantages. The disadvantage, you know, mainly at the moment has been due to limited penetration. Um, you know, and so basically light can only penetrate so far. And so if you think about the ocean, you know, when you're, you're going further down and down into the water it becomes darker and darker and darker because the light just doesn't penetrate as far anymore. And obviously when you're shining a light through a brain, you can imagine that not a light, not a lot of light gets in there. So basically, like if I stick a probe into your brain, not a lot of light is getting through your skull. And so it's just dark in there. It's just gray gloop in a dark cave, a dark, wet, cerebral spinal fluid bathed cave. So in order to get around that, of course, you have to do a surgical prep that opens up the skull. You have to insert the brain or excuse me, you have to insert a laser down into the brain which creates problems if you want to go for like deep brain structures, for example. Let's say, you know, this is something that we run into a lot with the brainstem. If you want to access the brainstem, it's hard to just stick something through the back of the skull by the brainstem because it puts it at a weird angle. And so a lot of times you have to come through 
the top of the skull. And and when you do that, in order to get to the brainstem, it's the brainstem's really far down when you come in from the top. And so that laser has to go through a lot of different brain regions in order to actually get to the brainstem. And so you're just, you know, basically putting this shish kebab or you're just, you know, lesioning all of these areas as you're going through to get down to the brainstem. And so, you know, this is where sometimes with the goats, when we were doing this and we we're trying to stick probes down, we weren't doing optogenetics, but we were, you know, using microdialysis probes, which are basically, you know, a similar size as the, the optogenetic fibers. And, uh, sometimes if you had to go through the cerebellum, for example, you'd, you'd have these goats that were trying to walk on the walls cause they had no, you know, per- perception of motor control much anymore. And so they, you know, they didn't realize what was up and what was down anymore for a while until it kind of came back. And then of course, you know, there's, there's the test, the technical expertise limitation. And so, um, the use of optogenetics while, it you know maybe it sounds complicated maybe it doesn't it just depends on your your level of experimental um, uh, expertise I guess or your experimental uh, experience but you know you have to be able to do these surgeries you have to be able to have access to the the, the viruses or you have to be able to access these genetically modified animals um, and so there is a big barrier as far as technical expertise goes in order to to do the actual experiments that use them. Great. So now it's already been 30 minutes and let's just go over the, the cool paper that I was talking about, which is actually taking optogenetics and it's flipping it around, you know? Um, and so it's looking at a behavior of anxiety. It's looking at how the heart can actually influence anxiety. And I don't mean the metaphysical heart. I mean the actual pump, 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 the actual heart that's inside of your chest. And so uh, there is a, a innovative technique that was used in order to actually pace the heart, so to change how fast the heart is beating, and then looking at whether or not it itself can affect anxiety. And so anxiety, you know, one of the main effects of anxiety, you get this increased blood pressure, you get an increase in your respiration, you have sweat, you know, you have all of these different things that start to happen. But one of the things that happens is you have an increase in heart rate. And what's Interesting uh, throughout the literature, actually, is that one of the concerns with artificially paced hearts, with pacemakers, things like that, is that you start to get some aversive or anxiety-like behavior, and and it's hard to parse out whether or not it's coming from the changes in blood pressure, if it's coming from the changes in the heart rate itself, it's coming from the changes in the hemodynamic properties of the blood flowing through the heart. Regardless, there's this interesting phenomenon that even though you being anxious, you working yourself up increases your heart rate, it seems like actually increasing your heart rate itself can then feed forward to make you anxious. And so it creates this vicious, you know, feed forward cycle where anxiety increases heart rate, increasing heart rate can change anxiety. You know, the, so the hypothesis is, is certainly not a good cycle when it comes to that. The problem is, is when you want to study it, it's hard to change, you know, it's hard to mechanistically change the heart rate in the mouse without inserting some of these things like a pacemaker or, or, or whatnot, which creates an invasive surgery. And oftentimes there's different feelings of having it in there. Um, and so it, it comes with its own caveat. So it'd be really cool if there was a way to activate the heart without the mouse really knowing that its heart is being activated. Um, for the most part, 
So a very non-invasive way in order to do that. And so uh, DeSaroth's group came up with, you know, this group was a pioneer in optogenetics to begin with. And of course, they continue to innovate within the field by by looking at this cardiogenic control of affective behavioral state in in, um, nature. So what they did actually is they used this optogenetic technique in order to insert these light-sensitive opsins into the cardiomyocytes of the heart. And they did this by targeting the mouse cardiac troponin T promoter. So basically um, a mouse-specific marker of some of the muscle cells within, within the heart. And the cool thing was instead of using the typical like blue or yellow light sensitive options, which yellow light and blue light don't penetrate very deep, which makes it tough, you know, if you wanted to study the heart, because then you'd have to stick a laser down by the heart. But they actually used a different light shifted or different wavelength shifted uh, opsin or or light sensitive protein, one called carmine that's that is um, activated by a deep red light. And the cool thing about deep red uh, lights is that they penetrate extremely far through tissue and they so that so they go further through than most other light wavelengths. Um, and so when you use this carmine um, based, optogenetic opsin or this light sensitive protein, you can stick them in deep neural structures, or in this case, you can stick it deep within the heart and you can place the red light just over the chest. And so basically these cardiomyocytes in the heart were infected with this light sensitive protein that were sensitive to the deep red light. And they put little jackets, little sweaters, I'm not even kidding, on the mice. And these sweaters emitted that deep red light and it was able to activate the heart and they were able to increase the heart rate up to up to almost 900 beats per minute in these mice. So it, it really created this very innovative mechanistic way in order to change the heart rate of the mouse without the mouse really even knowing, or I guess that was the question, you know, do, does changing the heart rate itself in a relatively non-invasive way affect anxiety-like behavior. And so they they did a bunch of tests. So one of the tests that they did was that you can take um, a box and you can basically split it in half. Um, But so the box itself is just intact, but you basically have this invisible line going through the middle of it. And what you can do is you can can program it such that any time that the mouse crosses over into a certain half of the box, you know, you have this invisible line. Anytime it crosses that invisible line, it turns on the red light from the little laser sweater. And so what you can do is you can see whether or not it, uh, whether or not turning on the light and increasing the heart rate, like I said, up to like, you know, anywhere from 600 to 900 beats per minute, whether or not the mouse avoids that area of the box. So is there an aversive like response to turning on the light, which then activates the heart? And what they found is that that, didn't have any effect, which is good. So basically, you know, anytime that the heart suddenly went bonkers, um, you know, whenever it crossed this imaginary line within the box, the mouse didn't necessarily, you know, care whether it was on the left or the right side of the box. It didn't, it didn't know. Um, and so it didn't prefer one side or the other. And so what that means is just at, you know, at a baseline state, just stimulating the heart really fast, it doesn't produce 
some sort of aversive behavior where otherwise what would have happened is the mouse every time that it crossed over that that line it would have went you know holy crap my heart is beating my heart is racing i better get over to the other side of the line because every time i cross into this side of the box i just feel weird but every time i go back to this side of the box i don't feel weird anymore and so you know uh this could have been a logical point. You know, this is one of the things that happens, I guess, in experiments oftentimes is that you'll get a result like this and you'll say, ah, you know what? Changing the heart doesn't change uh, behavior. But thankfully, you know, being stubborn as the scientists that, um, that, that many of us are, they continued on and they looked at whether or not there was context dependency in the anxiety, which is an interesting thing to look at to say, hey, you know what? Under these normal conditions, just pacing the heart doesn't necessarily produce anxiety. However, if we put the mice in a stressful situation, does changing the heart rate then modulate how they respond? Does it heighten the fear response or something like that? And so what they did is they used different um, different assessments to assess, essentially put the mouse in somewhat of a a fearful type of situation where there has to be some some sort of apprehension in the test. And so one of these is an elevated T maze. And so with an elevated T maze, you you have this 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 literal T. It just looks like a, a cross um, that's elevated. And uh, on on two arms of it, there are walls. And on the other two arms, it's completely open. And so mice that are experiencing anxiety will spend the majority of their time on the the arms that are that have walls because they don't you know they feel safe they know where the boundaries are they know where the walls are however if you have mice that don't have this you know fear con- context anxiety they'll spend a lot of times out in the open arms uh, you know exploring but there's always that danger that they're going to fall off or something's going to swoop in and get them and so you can test whether or not changing something in the brain, or in this case, changing the heart, can affect whether or not they're on, you know, in the in the the closed arms of the T maze, or if they're on the open part of the T maze. And interestingly, what they found was that when you stimulated the heart to go very fast, the mice did not want to be on the open arms of the maze. And so when there was that danger involved. Then it induced an anxiety-like behavior where they stayed in the closed portions of that elevated T-maze. Similarly, uh, there's a, an open field test that you can do. So basically you put the mouse just in an in a open little box and then you can see how much time it spends out in the middle of the box versus how much time it spends near the wall. So mice, mice typically like to keep one of their sides touching up against the wall because, you know, at least if they're against a the wall, then the, you know, they only have to defend three sides of them rather than, rather than all four. So they're less vulnerable because they're a prey animal, right? Um, and so when they found that when they stimulated the heart, uh, when you increase the heart rate, they spent more time against the walls and less time out in the open. And so um, they expressed more of this anxiety-like behavior in this, this test. And lastly, which was pretty cool, uh, was they used a um, a shock type of stimulus event. And so basically what it was, let me try to explain. So basically uh, what you can do is you can take uh, a mouse and you can keep it from having water for a certain given period of time. And so it becomes a bit thirsty. And so there's there's uh, incentive in order to drink water. And then what you can do is you can take a lick spout, which is where they get their water from. 
Um, and you can, you know, you can put the lick spout in front of them and you can see how many times that they go to the lick spout to drink the water. Um, and so you, you might be asking, how the hell does this actually uh, test anxiety? Um, what you can do is that you can randomize a shock. And so basically you can say that 10% of the time that the mouse goes to drink water, instead of getting water, it's going to get shocked. And so now, you know, it has to do sort of a risk reward type of assessment on the fly. How thirsty am I? Do I want to drink from this water spout knowing that, you know, roughly 10% of the times that I go to drink from this damn thing, it starts to shock me. Um, and so there's an apprehension that can be assessed. And interestingly enough, when you stimulate the heart to go faster, the, the mice were less likely to engage in uh, drinking, regardless of whether or not they were actually thirsty. And so basically, when they sped up the heart, you know, they were presented with the water and the mouse just said, you know, to hell with it. It's not worth it. I'm going to get shocked at some point. And so they were more apprehensive about engaging with a task that might be more risky, which is interesting because it says that when you have a faster heart rate, your likelihood of engaging in an activity that has a bit of risk with it goes down. So it has this anxiety-like effect. And then, of course, it wouldn't be a nature paper without uh, the full mapping of the circuitry of the brain. And so basically what they found was that the majority of these responses, um, you know, in the brain where it actually picks up the fact that you're having these anxiety or excuse me, you're having the increase in heart rate was in an area uh, called the insular cortex or the anterior insular cortex. And so basically the insula, which is, you know, this, this large portion of brain uh, on the side of your head near the temporal lobe that is it, when you learn about it, it says it's important for visceral sensation. So basically if there's, you know, feelings of change in your gut or in your heart rate or blood pressure or anything like that, when you get the sense that something's off, a lot of it's coming from the insular cortex. And so of course, um, what had happened was they, when they assessed the activity in the insular cortex, they found that um, these cells tended to be firing every time that the the heart rate was increased. And so basically they were sensing the fact that there was these changes in heart rate that were occurring. And then the amazing thing was that they subsequently went in and they took these cells that they were labeled. They said there's these certain types of cells within the insular cortex uh, that, and I just realized that I originally said anterior insular cortex, but in fact, uh, I believe it's the posterior insular cortex. Regardless, it's insular cortex. But um, but what they did was that they, they labeled these cells that were being stimulated by the changes in the heart rate. And then they went in with their optogenetics and they were able to inhibit these cells. And so what they could do is they could turn on the heart to increase the heart rate while preventing these cells from being activated, right? So you turn on the little light vest, the light sweater, the heart goes to 900 beats per minute or whatever, and then you inhibit these cells in the insula, insular cortex so they're not able to fire like they normally would. And you can ask the question, do these cells firing in the insula, which seem to be associated with the increase in heart rate, do they contribute to the anxiety-like behavior that occurs from an increase in heart rate? And that's exactly what they found. Because once they inhibited the cells, they prevented them from firing, there was no more 
evidence for the anxiety-like behavior. All of those tests, the change in the teammates test, the open field test, the change in the lick spout, they all went back to normal. And so it was a beautiful mechanistic study. And that is the story of the cardiogenic control of effective a ugh, cardiogenic control of affective behavioral state published March 1st in Nature. All right, stop to genetics. Let's wrap this thing up. www.theneuronetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram, follow us on YouTube, TikTok, uh, Apple, Spotify, all the major podcast players. Um, like us, give us a follow, give us a rating, give us a review. All of it really does help grow the channel. So uh, with that, enjoy the week.